Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to discuss a lot of deep ideas, but um, let's, let's just start like, with something that we can all kind of wrap our minds around, something very, very simple. Let's just start with, with the humble orange, <laughs> the, the fruit that grows on trees, okay? So everybody, everybody knows what an orange is. So if you just look at an orange, um, you'll see that, that the, the structure of it, like, like many fruits, by the way, is, is actually quite uh, impressive, quite amazing. Because you have the outside peel, and then you have the inside fruit. And so I would say for most of us, I know that there's exceptions to what I'm about to say, like orange zest, which is taken from the outside and things like this. Okay, it's, but in general, let's just talk in general right now. If you want an orange, if you are going to buy an orange, you're really buying it for the fruit inside. For the most part, you take off the outside, and, and then the purpose is the inside. Okay. So, so this is a lot of life. You see, in the, in the structure of, of the humble basic orange, and many other things fall into this category, including the world, as we're going to see in a moment, um, life, reality, really everything falls into this very simple idea that you have an outside and you have an inside. Right? All of us, we have bodies and we have souls. So you see, like, what is it? What's the, what's the essence? What's the essence? Not only do you see that, but it starts to get actually pretty way out pretty quickly. If you want to dive into just really exploring this idea, it gets pretty way out. I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to reference a, a uh, sort of a very classic, beloved science fiction series, um, that uses this idea, but this idea exists independent of this series. But Doctor Who has this thing called the TARDOS. Okay, what, what is this? It's a, it's a phone booth. And you know, you've all seen phone booths. They don't have them so much anymore. It's kind of a thing of the past. But, but nonetheless, people know what a phone booth is. They're maybe like two feet this way, two feet that way. You know, it's, and you walk into this little booth, right? Okay. So in this, in Doctor Who... You walk into one of these things, and as soon as you enter into it, you're in this palatial place, <laughs> this giant place, way larger than the phone booth. Okay, how does that work? Well, it's science fiction, right? Okay, but how science fiction is it, actually? Because as we go deeper into our discussion right now, we're going to see that this is actually pretty consistent with our everyday reality if we're sensitive to it. So again, let's just review this idea. There are things that look very finite on the outside, like the phone booth, but when you actually enter into them, you realize that they're vast and that the interior is greatly larger than the exterior. So, again, let's reference the body and the soul. The body seems very finite from the outside, right? You know, the, the contours are pretty, pretty compact. And yet, what's inside the body? A piece of God. The soul. You have an emanation of godliness animating you. And of course, God is infinite. So that, that, that means that there's an infinity 
inside your very compact exterior. Do you understand? So looks can be very, very um, deceiving. You can look at something from the outside and you can think that's the extent of it. But you have no idea of the depths or the infinite depths that actually exist on the inside of it. So then, if that's the case, for instance, let's just go a little bit deeper so you really kind of get in a, a fuller appreciation of what I'm talking about. You know, Torah teaches that the soul has five levels to it, five parts to it. There's three parts inside your body and two parts outside of your body. So inside your body, you have the nefesh, the ruach, and the neshama. And outside your body, above your body, you have the chaya and the yechida. Now the chaya and the yechida, these two aspects of your soul, which exist outside of you, beyond your body, extend all the way up to the kisei covered, all the way up to the throne of glory. Do you understand? This is going dimensions beyond you. So that means that So, for instance, the rabbis teach the following, that the body is to the soul what the shoe, what your shoe is, right? What your shoe is to your body. Say it again, I'll explain it. The body is to the soul what your shoe is to your body, meaning the following. Just like your shoe covers up a very small part of your body, your body covers up a very small part of your soul. Do you understand? So, so, so you see, when you look at another person, you think that the other person ends at the top of their head? Every single person extends all the way up to the Kisei covered, up to the throne of glory, which means that every single person straddles all of creation, which means that every mitzvah that you do emanates and reverberates throughout the cosmos. So every single person has incredible power. If you are alone in your house, you know, there's a prayer that we say in the morning, Le'olam Yehe Adam, which means that every person always should be, have Yerashamayim, be, you know, aware of godliness when they're in private and when they're in public. Right? A lot of people do do one or the other. Like they're in public, people are watching me, so I have to behave well, right? Like there's an old joke like this, where a guy is like, you know, the best thing really is not to travel on, by, by airplane for sure, the best thing is not to travel on Fridays. The reason is because you never know what kind of trouble you're going to get with plane delays and things like this, and then you can, you can be late for Shabbos. Right? You won't be able to get home in time for Shabbos. So if you can avoid traveling by air on Fridays, you should. Okay, but it's not always possible. Anyway, so here's the joke. Someone lands at JFK. person lives in Brooklyn. He's a religious Jew. His plane lands late. He's urging the cabbie, drive faster, please. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's going to be Shabbos. I'm not going to get home in time for Shabbos. And the cabbie, you know, the cabbie assures him, he says, God will understand. He says, God, what about my neighbors? <laughs> so, so a lot of people, they're, they're very concerned about their public performance. But, 
In private, anything goes, right? Other people, other people, this is less common, but you, you also have this. Privately, they're very devout. They're very devout, right? But publicly, I don't, I'm too embarrassed to express my beliefs. This also exists. This is also true. So the ideal is, is that privately and publicly, you're aligned. And the Talmud praises a person like this. They, they, they say that a person whose insides and outsides are in harmony with each other, that your, your inner feelings and your, the, the deeds of your, your hands, right, your, your body, say, are consistent with each other, that this is an idealized person. And they compare you to the Ark of the Torah in the Holy of Holies. Because inside, there was a golden box, and outside, it was also golden. So if you're golden inside and golden outside, if there's that consistency, right? That's, that's what we strive for. Okay, again. So how did we start? We started with the orange. We started with the idea that on the outside, it's like very contained, right? And, and, and yet on the inside is really the essence, and that the essence of someone can even be larger, that the inside can even be larger than the outside. Right? Because we see that the soul is even bigger than the body. You know, one of the theological questions that the rabbis have wrestled with is how did God give us the Torah? Meaning to say, the Torah existed before the world was created. The Torah is bigger than the entire world. How did God fit the Torah, which is bigger than the world, into the world? This is, this is a famous question. So the answer is, the, I'll give you an answer from the Aptarav. The Aptarav is buried right next to the Baal Shem Tov. Okay? I, I had the, the privilege of, of, of sitting by the kever of the Aptarav and, and learning... Oyev Yisrael, which is his safer, right, right there. Um, anyway, so the Aptarav explained, how did God take the Torah, which is bigger than the world, and fit it into the world? He gave us the Torah on Shabbos. And Shabbos is a day which doesn't have any borders to it. <laughs> because Shabbos is a taste of Olam of the infinite, in this world. And so because it's a day that doesn't have any confines to it, so, so God was able to, so to speak, fit something larger into the world, into the world, because there are no boundaries to Shabbos. Okay. So, so with this as an introduction, I want to transition to a discussion of Parsha's bow. Okay, bow is 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 the culmination of the ten plagues that God brought down on, on Egypt. And God really wanted to bring down these ten plagues. Um, well, he gave Paro free choice. Did, they didn't all have to come down. But, but, you know, God knows the future. God knows that Paro wasn't going to listen to him. So the whole idea of the ten plagues is, remember, there are ten spheros. If you were to take, like, an X-ray photo of the universe, of the cosmos, you would see these... Ten spheres of light, these ten emanations of light. Okay, it's very deep, but this is sort of like the, 
the, the, different, the different energies God formed into the creation of the world. Okay? And there are ten of them. So, so basically, what happened over the years since creation until the time that the Jews are leaving Egypt is idol worship became like a very big thing. And, and they built up idol worship so much that they sort of covered over godliness in this world. Okay? And, or they, they, they misattributed godliness in this world and they said, oh, this is from this God and that's from that God and this is from this God. So much so that God, so to speak, the, the revelation of godliness or the understanding of godliness, let's put it that way, was really encrusted over by this alien theology of idol worship. Is that clear? Now, just to tell you how impressive Egyptian culture was, because remember, we're studying it to this day. Children, you can't go through elementary school anywhere without studying Egyptian culture to this day. It was thousands of years ago. Shows you how majorly, radically impressive it was. So I just want to just tell you one little thing, just to give you a small appreciation of what it must have been to be an Egyptian or, or a Jew or anyone just walking into, like, Egypt, like the heart of Egypt, where all this was going on, okay? And the example that I want to give you is the following. I read this piece of information, and it just kind of, like, wowed me. When they had, I think they called it Operation Solomon, which was maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I'm not exactly sure when, but the Israeli government in modern days went into Ethiopia in order to get the Ethiopian Jews out, Okay? And, and to, bring them, to bring them to Israel. Now listen to this. When they got to the tarmac to fly to Israel, and it was a whole secret operation, they had to smuggle them out and all the rest, there was, and you can all picture this in your minds, you've all probably experienced this, from the tarmac to the airplane, there was a staircase outside the airplane, right? And you climb it, and then you enter into the airplane. Okay. Sounds pretty basic, Right? Listen to this. Now, remember, this is the modern era that this happened. These Ethiopians had never seen stairs. Is that wild? They'd never seen stairs. And this just happened recently, like a few years ago. So now, can you, under, can you understand, try to understand, in the ancient world, what did the landscape of most places where people lived look like? Basically, you had sand and your tent. <laughs> that was pretty much it. Okay, I'm, I'm sure that's a great simplification. But that, that was the basic, basic order of the day. Okay? Now imagine, in these same times, you walk into the heart of Cairo, right? Alexandria, like all these places. And I, I just saw this, I can't get it out of my head. There's this particular statue in Egypt. They call it the Colossus of... I forgot the rest of it, but the, the name of the place where it is. It's like, I don't know, five, ten stories high, and they've got a picture of a man standing next to it. He's like tiny against this giant thing, and it's a human body with like, I don't know, a dog head or an alligator head or something like this. And this was just the smallest part of it. This was the smallest part of it. You walked around in this area and it's like your brain was being blown out from every direction. In terms of just like 
And then the black magic and plagues and ah, all this crazy stuff, right? I heard from Rabbi Aaron that one of the reasons why God could have picked anywhere to make the Jews imprisoned. Why did he put it in Egypt? Because the whole world knew that the Egyptians were the masters of black magic. And had Moshe done any of these miracles, any of these plagues anywhere else, they would have said, oh, that's impressive, but show it to the Egyptians, because the Egyptians, they're really the kings of this. Right? So Hashem took it right to the heart of magic, of, of, of witchcraft in the world, and showed how none of this can stand up to the hand of God. And so basically what God was able to do, what he wanted to do on, on one level, was to take the ten plagues and to break down all the incrustations that were surrounding it of the ten spherot, break it all down. Right? Like remove all of the confusion all the confusion in the world and make it abundantly clear both to the Jews and to the Egyptians that all there exists is God. That nature itself doesn't exist. Do you understand? People think that there's nature and then there's God and that God controls nature. There is no two powers. It is only God. It is only God. You understand? So this is what God communicated. Now, now we have the culmination in Parsha's bow, and we're going to get to bow because, because it's, it's amazing, the, the spelling of bow, it's Bez Aleph, okay? But we're going to get to that in a moment. You're going to see like some amazing things in a moment. So, so, so Parsha's bow, right, is, is the section of the Torah where the Jews, the ten plagues, finish up, so that's like revelation, right? We're getting rid of all the encrustations of idol worship, and the Jews are now free to leave Egypt. Wow. That's, that's like a big wow moment. Like you, you, you want, a, you want a, a jam-packed... And then, amazingly, how does the Parsha end? With the mitzvah of tefillin. All right, bless you. Okay, so, so God willing, we'll get to that too. So, all right. So now let's go to Parsha's bow. It's the letter Bays, right? Which is the second letter of the, of the Olive Bays, right? And then it's the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Olive Bays. Okay, so interesting. So the Bays, I want to say the following. The Bays is the Bays of Breshit. Okay, that's the first letter of the entire Torah. The Bez is the Bez of Breshi. And the Aleph is the Aleph of Anochi Hashem Elokecha. Aleph is the first letter of the Ten Commandments. Okay? And, and we'll get into the Aleph. Maybe we'll just do it right now. Like, so, so how do we know, by the way, that there are 613 mitzvahs? Like everybody knows there's 613 mitzvahs, but how do we know that? So the Gomorrah tells us how. So if you take the gematria, the numerical equivalent of the word Torah, it's 611. And then you have the first two commandments, which Hashem spoke. So that adds up to 613. 
This is how we know there's 613 commandments. Okay. Now, Reb Shlomo says in the name of the Karmarno Rebbe, who is one of the greatest Kabbalists, okay, that the deeper Kabbalists say the following, which is Hashem didn't speak the first two commandments. He only spoke the word Anochi, which means I am. Can you imagine? You had about two and a half million people around Mount Sinai, and God just spoke the word I am. And contained within I am was the entirety of the Torah. But then Rabbi Shlomo says, in the name of the Quran or Rebbe, something even deeper, like beyond, 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 beyond. He says, Hashem didn't even speak the word Anochi. Hashem just spoke the first letter. He pronounced the Aleph of Anochi. Now, why is that so wild? Because that's wild. Because when I say Aleph, and when you say Aleph, you hear something. When I say Aleph, you hear Aleph, Lamed, Fe being pronounced. Aleph, you hear something. But you ready for this? Aleph is a silent letter. <laughs> That's the name of the letter. It's not the pronunciation of the letter. Hashem pronounced the letter Aleph. You can't pronounce the letter Aleph. It's silent. God pronounced the letter Aleph. But God can do it. God did it. And within that was the entire Torah. Okay, you, you, you feel a little bit the depths, the depths of the infinity of the Torah that came down. Remember we said, we started with that question, how can God fit the Torah into the world? The world is finite, Right? You feel the infinity of the Torah there. God pronounced the unpronounceable. And everything was contained within that. So now look at this. We have the letter Bez and the letter Aleph. Everything is coming together. The finishing of the tenth plague, the revelation of godliness in the world, right? The Jews are leaving Egypt. Okay? That's all in Parsha's bow. Bez the first letter of the Torah, the Beis of Breshit, which is creation. And then we have the Aleph of the Torah. Now, let's go back to our orange, our simple orange. You have the Beis of Breshit, that's creation. It's like the outside of the orange, right? And then you have the Aleph of the Torah. That's the depths and the meaning of creation. So what we have here in Parsha's bow is a marriage of creation and purpose. Creation and meaning. That's the base, that's the Aleph. And what God has given us with the Torah is the tools to, so to speak, unzip reality. <laughs> See, imagine, imagine you're standing in like a grassy field and you're just alone, it's beautiful, it's a sunny day, there's a wind blowing, it's ah, there's a breeze, right? And you just see these hills and everything like that. Now imagine going from the sky all the way down to the ground, there's a zipper. <laughs> and you're able to pull down that zipper 
and behind the bays, you get to the olive. <laughs> right? Like all of a sudden, you peel off the orange, so to speak, and then there you are with the olive. You're with like the infinity of creation. And again, what's so amazing is the infinite is right here. And yet, we have this simultaneous experience of the illusion of an exterior, right? Like that Tardos in Doctor Who, right? Where you walk into the phone booth, but then you enter into an infinite place, right? You have this idea that you look around and it looks like this world is sort of limited. They're like contours to everything. You can measure things. And yet, where are we really? We're like swimming in the infinite. So Reb Shlomo says, you know, on a very, very deep level, everyone looks at death as a curse. And by the way, there is something to it. There is something to it. He said, but imagine a world where all of us are totally immortal and we all live forever. He says, imagine you meet a girl and you say, oh, you know, I, w- would you like to go out sometime? Like, I'd, I'd like to get to know you better, you know? And she says, yes, I would. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll call you in two million years. <laughs> <laughs> but if you actually think about it, it, it sounds funny, right? But, there's, but think about it. Think about it. In a, in a world where no one ever dies and things go on absolutely forever, like, can you just begin to imagine, like, your timeline and what, what a day would be like in a, in a reality like that? So what happens is we have this thing called death. And we should all live long. But at the same time, death forces us to savor the finite aspects of reality. The, the exterior, the, the orange peel, of you, if you will. Right? The beauty of the moment. And God constructed a reality where he's able to infuse each moment which is a finite structure with our ability to create infinite moments. You can create infinite moments. And then you know what you can even do? You can take a snapshot of them. <laughs> right? Why do some pictures, like when you look at them, like they just feel, fill you with such joy? Others you can just scroll through. But some pictures, you look at it, you know why? Because there was a piece of infinity in that moment. That moment was filled with, with an eternity. And so you can have the interface, the intersection of the finite and the infinite. And you know what all that is because of? The blessing of death, believe it or not. It goes back to that. Crazy, right? Crazy. Unexpected. Unexpected. Again, we should all live long. Okay. So, again, we have the base of Brashid. It's the outside of the orange. That's creation. That's the thing waiting to be unzipped, so to speak. The reality that we can see, the infinity behind it, 
and the infinity that we're living with outside the, the peel, right? Because it, it goes into this world. Remember, I'm going to tell you something, a very fundamental idea right now. This is part of what we've been learning, but just to make it very clear. You have different maps of the cosmos, spiritually speaking. One map is the ten sphero. We, we, we discussed that already. Another map of the cosmos is the four worlds. Four worlds is a little bit confusing when you call it that way. Abiya is the abbreviation that you'll see in some holy books. Basically, it's just stratifications of light, of spirituality, of dimensions. In other words, it's just when you say four worlds, it's one world. It's this one reality. However, every time you jump a dimension, there's such a greater revelation of godliness in that dimension that they call it a separate world. But it's really one world. Okay? So, so the highest world is called Atsilus. And that's just, wow, just, just explosions of light. Just beyond, 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 beyond. That's the highest, okay? Then, through Tzimtzum, through the contraction of the light, it gets kind of squeezed down into the material realm, right? Light transitions into matter, right? The spiritual transitions into the physical, okay? And then you have this dimension that we live in called Asiya, which is known as the world of action, Right? This whole world is called the world of action. That's why it's important to get things done. You can't just think about things. You can't just mean well. It's nice to think about things. It's nice to mean well. You've got to do things. It's about doing things. That's this world. Okay? So in Asiya, and here's the thought. This is what I want to share with you. Very important thought. The amount of godliness... In Atsilus, in the highest realm, there's the same amount of godliness in our realm. It's just covered over. See, because it's covered over, don't think that there's less of it. Do you understand? See, this is where we have to change the this is where we have to change the visual of the orange. Okay? So what we're encountering is the orange peel. And then inside the orange peel is the essence, is the orange, okay? But now imagine that you have the orange peel, and surrounding the orange peel is a massive invisible orange. (laughs) The inside of an orange. And you're standing right now inside the orange, okay? Just can't see it. So if you want to make any progress in your life, you have to realize what is the, what is the landscape that, that, that we exist in, right? Wherever we go, we're, we're swimming within godliness, right? My, my favorite teaching, which I, I've said dozens of times, I once imagined a conversation between two fish, and one fish says to the other fish, do you believe in water, right? And the other fish goes, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water, <laughs> What's the joke? The only thing that's going on is water. <laughs> so that's like you and me. We're like looking around. You think there's a God? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Very philosophical, right? What's keeping you alive? <laughs> What's keeping the world going? 
The only thing that's going on is God, 24-7. The only thing that exists is God, period, end. So I was having lunch with a friend of mine. I said, where did you park your car? He says, across the street. I said, do you realize you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? <laughs> so so this, is, this is where we are. This is where we are. That's, that's the idea I'm using... Uh, I'm using different language now, a different image, but working with the, within the orange, the idea that you've got the peel, right? And that you unzip reality and you get to the essence, that's the fruit. But don't think for a moment that reality begins with the outside of the orange. You've got a massive inner orange that you're standing in that's bigger than the world surrounding you. Just can't see it. But once you become aware of it, if you sensitize yourself, you'll see godliness in absolutely everything. You, you won't be able to not see God. Right? Or aspects, emanations of God. Only God sees God. Right? Only God sees God. Even the highest angels are only seeing an aspect of God. Because God encompasses everything. He saturates the entire world, and he exists dimensions beyond the world. Okay. So I want to go deeper. So we have the base of Brishi, which is the first letter of of the Torah. Okay. And then we have the Aleph, that's Parsha's bow. Okay. That's the Aleph of the Torah, of the revelation of the Torah. We have creation and meaning fused together in the word bow. And such a beautiful teaching, the idea God says, go to pa- go go to Paro, right? But bo- go going and coming are kind of like they're overlapping, right? Because God is saying, when when you go, I'm coming with you. <laughs> Wherever we go, even to a scary place, God is coming with us. And imagine, like we discussed, how scary Egypt was. Egypt itself was, it was terrifying, you understand? Because nothing in our normal day-to-day reality looked like that. And not only this, did this not look like our normal day-to-day reality, it was like, you know, like imagine a little kid going to Disneyland, right? Now imagine 50 times that, okay? Just to begin to put your head into it. And one of the things that we said a few weeks ago, but I just want to repeat it quickly because it's, it's stayed with me, is that sometimes God puts us in a very scary situation. Like it was very scary to go to Pharaoh. Very scary, right? Some God, sometimes God creates scary situations for us. You know why? Because he wants us to be brave. He's creating an opportunity for us to be brave. Very interesting. So if you ever get scared, ask yourself the question, is this just an opportunity that's been created just for me at this moment to be brave? Because if it is, that's a special opportunity that I'm being given right now. I have to take advantage of it. Let me be brave. Right? Okay. So again, I want to go deeper. So we have Bayes and Aleph, bow, Parsha's bow. The base of creation, that's like, so to speak, the outside. That's the, 
That's what we see with our eyes. Then we have the Aleph. That's what we see, you know, if we unzip creation, if you will. So if I were to ask you, what's the first letter of the Torah? So it seems pretty basic. We've said it a few times already. It's the base, the letter base of Rashi's, right? Of in the beginning, right? With beginnings, out of beginnings. Okay. But I want to say something deeper now. So the Ramban says in his introduction to Chumash, and I'm sure this idea is older than that, that the Torah itself is black fire on white fire. The Torah is black fire on white fire. Now, maybe you thought up until now that, well, I've seen a Torah scroll. It's basically just ink on parchment. That's what it is. And the parchment is there, and it's white, so that you can see the ink. So that would be a very, that would be a very youthful, let's say, understanding of what it is. It's black fire on white fire. The black fire represents the revealed aspects of creation. Black fire is what you can see with your eyes. White fire is the spiritual dimensions. White fire is the realms that are there, but you can't see them. Okay? We see with our eyes a very tiny percentage of what's going on in the universe. Okay? And I'm not talking about like I can't see what's going on in China right now. That's also true. But I'm, I'm saying something deeper than that. I'm saying that material reality, Olamasiya, the world of action, this dimension that we dwell in, is a very small part of the entirety of all the worlds in creation, the spiritual realms. Percentage-wise, this is, this is a small amount. Certainly within the infinity of God, this is a tiny, tiny amount, right? Reb Shlomo put it very beautifully one time. He said, this world is like looking through a peephole. So you're looking through a little keyhole, right? And you see there's someone raising a knife over another person. And you say, there's a murder taking place. But what's going on on the other side of the door? It's an operating theater. It's a, it's a surgeon is saving the other person's life. But, but we don't see it. We don't see it. I'll give you another example. When I had my first child, he was crying, screaming, crying, and, you know, I, I thought, you know, he's, he's probably hungry, and, and, and I'm making a bottle, and he's still screaming, crying, and he's, you know, I, I don't have any experience with these. Excuse me, I don't have any experience with these things. He's so little, and he seems like he's in pain. What, what can I do? So, so I'm making the bottle, and, and I feel like that's what he wants. And, and, and yet he's still screaming, crying. And I can't figure it out, because I'm doing what he wants. And, and yet it's not calming him at all. And I get the bottle ready, and then I'm bringing it closer to his face. He's still screaming, crying. Then I put it in his mouth. He stops crying. And someone told me, that babies can only see a few inches from their face. And I thought, wow, that's like you and me. We can see just the things immediately happening in front of us. But all the things that God is preparing for us, like there's a conversation, like let's say someone needs a job. 
right now, two people are talking in a coffee shop, and one says, oh, you know who would be good for that project? And mentions your name. But we don't know. Like, there are things being prepared. But like the baby who can only see a few inches in front of their face. We're we're, we're like that also. You see? But again, the point is, is that what we see, this world is a very small piece of what's going on. So in other words, to relate it back to the Torah, the Torah itself, the Medrash says, the Zohar says, that the Torah is the blueprint of reality. Okay? So, So... Reality is composed of those things that you can see with your eyes and those things that you can't see with your eyes but are there. Right? Now remember, math and, and physics now are corroborating what used to be the realm of belief. It used to be, if I can't see it with my eyes, I have to believe that it's there. Now math and physics are telling you about dimensions and realms that exist that they can document that are beyond this world. Isn't that amazing? You know what we would call math and physics a few years ago? Religion. (laughs) Because it used to be, wait, you're talking about something I can't see and I can't touch? Okay, you're very religious. This is like the top levels of academics now are saying what we've been saying from the very beginning. But if you think about it, it's just intuitive. Why? Imagine a live person next to a corpse. What's the difference? Or imagine a live person who then becomes a corpse. Right? What's the difference? Their soul left their body. Did you see the soul leave the body? Did you see the soul when it was in the body? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) The most fundamental aspects of reality are going on in front of us and we can't even see them. You know, Pasteur, the, 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 the French, I don't know what he was, scientist, I guess, let's say. He was the one who came up with pasteurization. That's, that's Pasteur, that's where the pasteurization comes in. Why do we pasteurize milk? That means boiling milk. Why do we boil milk? Because he said like, you know, a hundred plus years ago, there are little things in the milk that you can't see with your eyes that are harmful. And you know what the townspeople said? <laughs> there are little things that you can't see. <laughs> right? Like, he was the idiot. So, you have black fire and white fire. You have the revealed against the backdrop of the unseeable, but it's there. It's 100% there. Okay. So now let's return to our question. Parsha's bow is, is uh, the base of, of Breshit, right? First letter of the Torah, of black fire, right? So here's a pretty basic question. If you thought about it, you'd ask it yourself. Certainly the Midrash asks it. Why is it that the Torah begins with the second letter of the olive base and not with an olive? Right? When you hear the question, it's so obvious. Especially since on a mystical level, our tradition is that God combined the energies of the Hebrew letters in order to make the world. 
So if, if we had the construct of the alphabet before the world was created, and certainly the Torah existed before the world was created, right? That was God's plan for the world, right? If he hadn't realized it yet, but God had a plan for the world, and that's the Torah as it existed before, before the world was created. So, so why doesn't the Torah begin with the letter Aleph? I'll tell you, the Medrash makes the question even stronger. You ready for this? We're going to give another answer in a second, but let's just learn the classic teaching on this. They say that the letter Aleph, you know, they, the, the rabbis, believe me, they, they thought about this for a very long time. It's such a, an amazing answer they give, but we're going to have to explain their answer. They say, you know why God didn't begin the, the, the Torah with the letter Aleph? Because Aleph is the first letter of the word Aur, which means cursed. And Bez is the first letter of Baruch, which means blessed. So God began the Torah with the letter that signifies blessing and didn't want to do it with Aleph because Aleph signifies cursing, Aur. Okay, so now I want to jump in. <laughs> this is me talking. <laughs> Aleph is such a holy letter. Oh my goodness. Aleph is like the best letter in the Aleph base. I mean, you know, you can all pick your favorites, but Aleph is awesome. You're telling me that Aleph stands for cursed? Let's break down Aleph for a second. The most basic teaching in the word on Aleph. Aleph is actually composed of three letters. There's the Yud, Vav, and then the lower Yud. So you have a Yud above, a Yud below, and then a Vav. That's Aleph is three letters. If you add up those three letters, it adds up to 26, which is the gematria of God's holiest name, yud ke vav You're telling me Aleph stands for cursed? It's the name of God. It's impossible. So how do we explain what the Medrash is saying? Also, Aleph is the gematria number one. Hashem Echad. One. Okay. Now I want to give my explanation. You see... Why did God create this entire world to begin with? So that we could look at the illusion, the illusion that there are many powers in this world, right? And that we could see through it and use our free choice to recognize that it's only one. You understand? This is, God created a world from the letter Bayes. Bayes means two. What are the twos? Good and evil. Heaven and earth. This world and the next world. The hidden and the revealed. And the deepest, two stands for free choice. Why? Because I can do this or I can do that. That is the greatest description of this world. And it's all contained within the first letter of the Torah which again is the blueprint of reality. God begins this world with the letter Bayes to give us free choice so that we can bring blessing. Remember, Bayes stands for Baruch, according to the Medrash. God begins it with all this confusion, all this duality, like all these opposites. God puts it into the world so that we can have the blessing of seeing that there's only one thing in the world, God. Now, if God had made us like angels, we would have no free choice. 
And so we couldn't get any blessing because we couldn't use our free choice to put more godliness into the world, to reveal more godliness into the world. And that would be a curse. (laughs) Okay. So again, we have to go deeper. So while it's true, while it's true that on the level of this world, the best description of this world starts with a base, a black fire base, meaning that's what God is revealing in this world, the idea that there's multiplicity, that it looks like there's the illusion of many powers, right? That's the base of this world. What's the first letter of the Torah? So now I want to say something very, very deep. I want to say the following. It's not the black fire base. That's what appears to be the first letter of the Torah. Really, before the black fire base, there's a white fire olive. (laughs) In other words, because the entire world exists within God. Right? God existed before the world was created. What did we say that the Aleph, Parshas Bo, base Aleph, what did we say that the Aleph stands for? The first letter of the Torah. The Torah existed before the world existed. In other words, that's the white fire Aleph. The Zohar says God and the Torah are one. Right? That the Torah, so to speak, is the mind of God. God doesn't have a body, no physicality to God. But God, God and the Torah are one. Not only that, but the idea of the Jewish people existed before the world was created. And now you want to hear a mind blower? Because the Zohar also says that God, the Jewish people, and the Torah are one. You ready for this? This is from the Rishon Rebbe. All contained within the letter Aleph. Aleph, if you pronounce Aleph, right, the letter Aleph, let's do it together. How would you spell it if you want to pronounce Aleph? It's Aleph, Lamed, Fe. That's 1 plus 30 plus 80, which adds up to 111, which is 111, which is God, the Torah, and the Jewish people are all one. <laughs> That's the Rishon Rebbe. <laughs> and speaking of Bez and Aleph, have we been speaking of Bez and Aleph? <laughs> you ready for this? Something also awesome, 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 awesome. So this is from the Balaturim. This is a gamatria from a thousand years ago, at least. He's operating about a thousand years ago, but who knows where he got it from, right? Maybe from beyond, I don't know. But when God, we're talking about the juxtaposition of creation, the Beis of Breshi, and the Aleph of the giving of the Torah. Okay? Right before God gives the Torah, there's a verse in the Torah, and you can read it. It's right, right before the Ten Commandments. And that verse, right before the word Anochi, right? The verse right before the giving of the Torah, contains seven words and 28 letters. Okay? The Balaturim points out that there's only one other verse in the entire Torah that contains seven words and 28 letters. 
You ready for this? Breshis bara elokim es hashamayim ve'es ha'aris. The very first verse of the Torah. The verse of Breshis. In other words, here you see like Bez and Aleph, the Bez of Breshis and the Aleph of the Torah, the outside and the inside, the finite and the infinite, the intersection of both of them. Right before God gives the Torah, the verse right before God gives the Torah, He's summoning Breshis. The intersection of creation and meaning. The fact that both of them go hand in hand. You need both. So again, when God creates the world the very first day, it says Yom Echad. Why, why Yom Echad by the first day of creation? Because it says that when the world was created, all that existed was God. Right? He existed before creation. So before the black fire bays, you have the white fire Aleph. And of course, the Aleph also stands for the Torah because the Torah existed before the whole world was created. And you have the juxtaposition of them both in numbers and in words <laughs> when the Torah is eventually revealed into the world. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Everything sinks together incredibly. Okay, now, I promised you we discussed to fill in as well. Okay? So... So, if you, if, you, um, if you look at the end of Parsha's bow, you have, like, these things culminating. You have, you have the, the finishing of the ten plagues, which is the eradication of idol worship till this day, really. Because after the plagues, it, God has revealed that he controls all of nature in the most astounding way. Right? Imagine, again, I'll give you another visual which I love so much. This idea that when Moshe is entering into Egypt, like before, he's been given this this mission to to free like, I don't know, like approximately two and a half million people leave Egypt with Moshe. And Moshe is coming in on a donkey unarmed. And then cut to <coughs> throngs and masses of people leaving and Egypt is the smoking ruins without one weapon. Without one weapon. It's incredible. It's incredible. Why are we still talking about it to this day? That's just one of the reasons. <laughs> okay. So how a Parsha is going to end like that, like that's going to be pretty significant. And the answer is, is that it's, it's, it's ending with tefillin, the mitzvah of tefillin. Okay. So now I want to tell you something just amazing about tefillin. Okay. If you look at the head tefillin, on the one side of the head tefillin is the letter shin. And it's the classic presentation of the letter shin. It has three prongs. Okay, But if you look on the other side of the tefillin, you see something very unusual, almost bizarre, almost bizarre. You see another shin, but it has four prongs. So you look at that, and it's like, 
It's almost like you're looking at an alien alphabet. Where, where did this four-pronged shin come from? It's not in the entire Torah. You can't. You, you can look through the entirety of the Torah and all of Tanakh. It does not exist. The four-pronged shin does not exist. And yet here we have one of the holiest mitzvahs out of the 613 mitzvahs. They say that tefillin is like equal to all the mitzvahs. And, and you have this four-pronged shin on it. And not on the arm, by your heart, by the head. Why? Why? Okay. So now I'm going to tell you something that I think is very amazing. What if I told you that there was a remnant left over from the first tablets? The tablets that Moshe smashed at Mount Sinai. What if I told you that there's a remnant in this world from those first tablets? And there is. You know what it is? It's the four-pronged shin. And I'm going to explain to you exactly how that works, okay? And this I'm quoting to you from Rabbeinu Bachaya. And this is in the chapter on the letter Shin in this book, which I recommend everyone, you should just click pause right now and buy it right now. It's called The Wisdom of the Hebrew Alphabet. It's an art scroll book. It goes letter by letter through the Hebrew alphabet, and it's a compendium of Jewish philosophy. It has Gomorrahs, it has Zohars, it has Medrash in it. You can't believe the treasure chest that's contained within this book by Rabbi... Michael L. Monk, we, really, we owe him a tremendous, tremendous debt for putting this book together. Michael L. Monk? Monk, M-U-N-K. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, and you can see a little chart on the, uh, on the margin of what I'm describing right now, okay? But anyway, the idea is like this. If you, and if you don't have the book in front of you, you can, you can raise three fingers, okay? Raise, your, raise three fingers, like a three-pronged shin. I have a friend who like, wanted to, uh, to start this as a thing. I don't know if it ever got off the ground, but I kind of liked it. He said, instead of pe- giving people the peace sign, which is two fingers, you can give them three fingers. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> right? That's kind of like, you know, like... The Shekhinah, right? Like kind of bringing God down into the world, you know? It's cool, you know? So anyway, Jewish gang signs, you know? Anyway, so so anyway, you have you have the the three-pronged shin. You can you can hold up three fingers. Now with your other hand, just fold in your thumb for a moment, so you've got four fingers, and lower the four fingers so that they intersect the three fingers. Do you see how with the four fingers you have one finger on one side of the three and one finger on the other side of the three? And then two in between. So that's the four-pronged shin. Okay? And it's intersecting with the three-pronged shin. So now how does this work? How does this have anything to do with the first tablets? Okay? Well, now we're going to get back to our friend. Black fire on white fire. Okay? The regular shin is the black fire shin. But there was a special, the first tablets were very miraculous. There were many miracles by the first tablets, okay? One of them is that they were carved out so that you could see the outlines of the letters. 
all right, so that you could look through the tablets and you could see like the outline of all the letters. You could see the other side. Now, one of the crazy miracles by the first tablets was that if you then turned it the other way, it read the exact same way as it did the other way. In other words, if you, turned, if you turn anything around, it should be the opposite of what it was the first side. But here, whichever way you turned it, it read the normal way. <laughs> and yet each letter was chiseled through, which means that if you chisel out a three-pronged shin, you have a four-pronged shin. Because the outline of the three-pronged shin, like the intersection that we just made, is a four-pronged shin. But you, that would be the white fire. You're seeing through that. You understand? So you have the revealed aspect, and then you have the hidden aspect. The four-pronged shin represents the white fire, the hidden levels of reality. All right, now let's go deeper. Every single person, because tefillin, this is going now on the top of your head. Okay? And by the way, just the, the, the woman should feel included in this as well. You should know that every mitzvah contains every other mitzvah. Okay? Every mitzvah contains every other mitzvah. So that we all have a share in each other's mitzvahs. Okay? So you shouldn't think that somehow you're left out from this. Everyone's included in this. Okay. So, so now I'm just going to stand to the side for a second because you can actually see it better. Every person's body is in the shape of the holiest name of God. Your body spells out Yudke Vavke. Let me, let me show you how. Okay? So if you look at my head and my neck, do you see how that's the letter Yud? Okay, so that's, that's Yud. Then you kind of wave your arms back and forth, stretch them out a little bit. You see, that's the letter He. Right? Then the trunk of your body, right? This is for men and women both. The trunk of your body, like your torso, is the letter Vav. And then your legs, again, are like your arms. It's the letter He again. So your body spells out the name of God. Unbelievable. But we go deeper now, okay? The letter Yud is not just the simple, like, little dash on top, and then you've got a right angle and it goes down. If you actually look at the correct way to write a letter Yud, and this is how it appears in the Torah, there's a little point on the top of the top line. The top line looks like it's flat, and then you make a right angle going down, but there's a little, they call it a cuts, a little, little, like, point, little crown on the top of the Yud. Pointing up. So you're ready for this? Your head is the letter Yud, right? But when you put the head to fill in on it, that's the point of the letter Yud. Mm-hmm. Now, the tip of the letter Yud stands for what's called the Kav. That's the initial light, the straight line of light that God shone into creation when he created the world. Now, where does the tefillin go on? It goes on if you've, if you, you know, have had experience with babies. There's a soft spot to the head. You have to be very careful around a baby because the top of the head is the last place where the skull fuses and there's an opening there. And some traditions even have this idea of the third eye. 
So amazingly, you're putting the tip of the yud, which stands for the ray of light that God shone into creation on this entrance, which allows entry because it's never completely closed to like to your brain, to your essence, to your soul. You're basically putting on this antenna to catch light from beyond. But now let's put it all together. What does it mean, light from beyond? That's what the four-pronged shin is doing there. Because the four-pronged shin is, is a piece from the beyond. It's from the first tablets. It's white fire. But when you receive it, you transact that white fire, the hidden, into the revealed. Through your action, through receiving it, you turn that light into reality. And so that white fire for prunction becomes a black fire for prunction because you're bringing that energy from beyond and making it real into this world. So everyone should put on tefillin. Everyone should own tefillin. Every single day, if you don't have tefillin, it's like you're walking around without your legs. What are you doing? What do you who like? What game are you playing with your life? Okay, so let's just wrap it up. All that exists is God, and you know what? I used to tell my kids, you know, sometimes when they'd go to bed, and that's always a special moment between parents and children. If you have the privilege of having young children, you should realize that the the children's hearts are most open right at the time that they're going to bed. Rabbi Shlomo explained it because all of our souls go up when we go to sleep, so... So this is a very precious moment. Like, their, their hearts are open. So he said, you know how to put someone to bed? You tell them, I love you, and I need you, and Hashem loves you, and Hashem needs you, and you're beautiful. Right? That's, that's how you put someone to sleep. And if you don't have someone to say it to, you can say it to yourself. Because <laughs> it's also true. <laughs> I used to tell my kids sometimes... I said, you know, I love you so much. I love you so much. But do you know who loves you even more than me? Hashem. So, we're so lucky to be able to, to just even exist. And we really, even in the best of times, we just have a few precious moments in this world. Shem should bless us that we should fuse the bays and the olive. We should come to him at all times. We should, we should take the revealed aspects of creation and be able to fill them with meaning. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.